If you would like to earn CPE credit for listening to the show, visit earmarkcpe.com backslash FPA. Download the app, take a short quiz, and get your CPE certificate. If you would like to earn continuing education credit for your FP&A certification from the Association of Finance Professionals for listening to the show, go to the show notes for details on how to earn the credit. Finally, if you enjoy listening to FP&A today, please go to your podcast platform of choice, click the subscribe button, and leave a rating and review of the show. And now, on to the show. From Data Rails, this is FPNA Today. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FPNA Today. Today, we have a special guest host, Annette DeYoung, and you are listening to FPNA Today with her. FPNA Today is brought to you by Data Rails, financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. Every week, we welcome a leader from the world of financial planning and analysis and discuss some of the biggest stories and challenges in the world of FP&A. We will provide you actionable advice about financial planning and analysis today. This is going to be your go-to resource for everything FP&A related. And I'm thrilled to welcome today's guest on the show because today I get to be the guest and Annette gets to be the one interviewing me. So I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Annette now and let her ask the questions. Hey, thanks, Paul. And it's great to be here as the guest host. I was a guest on this show. It's been months, but on one of the shows. And so, uh, yes, the roles are a little switched today. And so now everybody who listens to you and watches you in the FP&A podcasts, now they get to actually hear more from you instead of the other guests in FP&A. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to see how I do. Yeah. <laughs> well, welcome to the show, Paul. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Yeah. So, you know what? We're just going to go ahead and get started. I have, you know, I, I did post on LinkedIn, you know, to see if there were any burning questions. Um, I do have a, cu- a few, but we're going to start with something a little bit more basic today. So, Paul, could you start by just giving us a little bit about you and your background? Sure. Yeah. So I'll give you a little bit about my background. I actually started my career, funny enough, in procurement for the government. I uh, was civilian, but I worked for the U.S. Navy for about four years writing contracts. Pretty quickly realized writing contracts for a career was not where I wanted to be long term and uh, ultimately made the decision to go back to grad school. I did a dual degree in MBA in finance and a master of science in information management. And I went to work for American Express. First, I was doing report writing and as well as also managing a cash forecast. And an FP&A role came open and it was a promotion. So I applied, not even really knowing what FP&A was, but going, hey, if I can make more money, I'm in. And, you know, amazingly enough, I got selected. And that started my FP&A career. That was, I'd say, 2010, late 2009, somewhere in there. And been doing FP&A ever since. Worked for a few different firms. Uh, Solera, a global automotive company. DigiCert in the cybersecurity industry. And then started my own business just over a year ago in March of last year. Wow. So I, I have to ask the procurement for the government, and then you decided to go into finance and accounting. Like, what was your motivation there? I mean, other than procurement for the government? Well, you know, honestly, so the procurement part for the government, what I planned on going into, I originally was going to do more uh, system type stuff because I'd worked in a business systems office on a joint requirement board, kind of moving away from procurement. But when I took my advanced finance class, I'd always like numbers. I really just fell in love with the class. 
and decided to go more of the finance route. I kind of wanted to do some investment banking stuff, but I graduated grad school in 2008. That wasn't an option. The market wasn't in a place with, to hire somebody with no experience you know, to, to do that. And so I found a finance role that turned into FP&A and just kind of been doing it ever since. Great. Thanks. So since we're going to kind of, you know, focus on the FP&A, what is it about it that you absolutely love? Why did you decide, right, FP&A compared to maybe other parts of finance? Yeah. So I think the thing I like most about FP&A is working with the business. It's the business partnering side. It's the some of the areas where, you know, some companies will also have you doing some of the operations. Like I've done a little bit of sales ops, a little bit of rev ops, but really it's the business partnering. It's helped driving the business forward, working with them. I've never really had a, outside of one, but generally I've never had a corporate finance role. I've almost been always in the business unit, supporting the business directly. And that's really what I liked in FP&A. And being able to make a difference, feel like you're impacting and knowing what's going on and seeing the whole business operate. Those are things I really enjoyed. Yeah, I mean, you know, budgeting, forecasting, I like building a model, like figuring out drivers and trying to be close. Variance commentary and some of those things, yeah, not as much, but, you know, it's an important part of the job. Yep. No, and so so you mentioned that you've never held like, a corporate finance position, um, always kind of like SMB, right? Where everybody kind of works together. So I come also from the same type of background where accounting and finance, um, they're usually only a couple of people, right? They're not completely separated from each other like they are in corporate finance. So how were that, like, how was that working with, of course, you have a finance degree, but working with accountants, you know, I mean, obviously one's, one's kind of, you know, looking at history, you're looking at the future. Just give me some backgrounds on maybe some of those relationships between, right? They're so close, but yet so far away. You know, what was interesting when I first jumped into uh, an FP&A role at one of the companies I worked for at American Express, we would post some of the journal entries. So that was kind of different, you know, and a lot of our accounting outside of the controllership was offshore. Okay. So worked a lot with India. So definitely worked with them a lot and, you know, had good relationships. I look at it as really a partnership. You know, one of the big areas often we'd work a lot in is accruals. You know, providing support, helping with audits sometimes and explaining how things were done. When I worked in the travel industry, it was American Express travel side. We had some different entries that were unusual for a lot of businesses. And they took a while to get the auditors comfortable and even some of the accounting people. And then as time went on, one of the more interesting you know, partnerships I had, well, kind of two. One, I was working with controllership a lot because we had some stuff in the business that we had to clean up because they've kind of been left to their own and they hadn't had any FP&A oversight. And this was international, some of our small markets. And so they were recognizing things not necessarily gap compliant. And so there was a lot of working with controllership very closely to try to bring them in line and standardize the approach. And then the other time that was really interesting where I had to work with actually treasury and accounting quite a bit is I did the uh, forecasting for travelers checks for American Express. And, you know, 99%, almost 100% of our revenue came off the balance sheet. Either the interest we earned from all the liabilities that, you know, from prior year sales and abandoned property. So we could take breakage revenue outside the US. And so we'd take a percentage, basically assuming some of it would be abandoned property and never get in cash. And so that was really interesting because I'm trying to forecast calls. 
for the for the portfolio I ran. Hey, when's this municipality going to call its bond early because of interest rates? And you know, do we have enough? Or are we going to have to sell some of these to manage our cash and things like that? So that was a really interesting one to coordinate with Treasury and with you know controllership around how the balance sheet accounts work because that was the biggest piece of the business. Yeah. And, and I think because I did, you know, about five years in banking and and yes, I will agree that coming in the balance sheet is completely upside down compared to a normal business, right? Loans are assets, right? So, you know, you almost have to relearn what you've learned in school when you're going into the banking industry, for sure. Yeah, no, for sure. And I've heard that just even doing traveler's check and prepaid got a little bit of that banking experience. So, yeah. So all of that excitement, why did you leave a full-time FP&A role to focus on consulting and teaching? Why not? <laughs> um, no. So it was a long time coming as a journey. My undergrad, which not many people know, I did business management with an entrepreneurship emphasis. I wrote my first business plan my junior year of high school, and I came in fourth in the state competition. Wrote one again my senior year and came in fourth. And both years, they messed up my score. So the teacher's like, hey, we're going to take you to the national event. So I actually got to present at the uh, National High School Business Association for a business plan. And so I'd always enjoyed writing business plans and the idea of business, but I'm by nature very conservative, as a lot of finance people are, and just never had an idea that one excited me and two, the nerves go, hey, I'm going to go out on my own. And about a year and a half ago, a bunch of things came together with a number of different opportunities. Someone wanted me to do a course, some consulting stuff, some you know, influencer marketing deals with some vendors. And I uh, told my wife, I'm like, hey, I think I can start my own business. And she looked at me like I was crazy. And we talked about it for the next, I don't know, six weeks or so. And one day she's like, yeah, go for it. I'm like, you sure? Because I'm going to put in my notice today. So you better be sure. She's like, I'm sure. And put in my notice that day and been doing it ever since. So basically you were made for this, right? I mean, obviously all the way from high school to today, it's it was, it was just bound to happen eventually. Fortunately it did. I didn't think it would ever happen, but I've always wanted to own my own business. So it's kind of a dream come true. So looking back, I would say, I mean, this has only been, you know, a few years, but I would say like maybe looking back over the past 15 years or so, what would you say besides going out on your own was like your biggest accomplishment? Oh, that's a, that's a good question. I look back on my career. There's two that come to mind, but I'll share one. So I just started a new role with a company. They just put a new ERP in place. They had just went from every business kind of being up their own portfolio where they were doing their own accounting and they created a shared service. And this company had done at this point, I think 54 acquisitions over the prior 12 years. So, you know, and a lot of those were US. So there were, you know, 30 plus legal entities and a lot of different businesses. And we had no good insight because the reports weren't very well built out when they first started the shared service. People were struggling and. So in my first few months, I went through and figured out there was this re one report they had built. And I went ahead and I hadn't really used Power Query or Power Pivot at this point. I learned Power Query, figured out Power Pivot could work. At first, I was running it through an access database because I didn't know what I was doing. And I got this report working that allowed everybody to see their, their budget and the actuals all the way down to the transaction in this Excel report. And that was within a few months. And eventually, the business realized, because people kept asking about it, that it was needed and they built it in some cubes and it was used company-wide. I like to call it, it was the low-cost ghetto BI tool because they didn't want to invest at the time. They had other projects that were taking priority, but that was one I was proud of because four years later when I left, people were still using it. 
So yeah, that is a, a great accomplishment and that uh, you really did change, I think, you know, the way that the business was run. Yeah, it made, it made a big difference. The accountants were using it, the business was using it to help people better research and understand results without having to, you know, go through and look up journal entries in the general ledger, which takes forever and nobody wants to do unless they have to. Yeah, that's all that manual labor, right? You're right. Nobody wants to do it. And I think, I think just because you created something that was used company-wide, a lot of times we're trying to find ways in finance to teach the business to fish, right? Rather than always having to having to have the answer to the questions, right? And that's where I think, you know, a lot of times we put in so many more hours, right? Because nobody has access to the data. They don't know how to use it or what it's for. So I think, you know, creating something and allowing, you know, educating those other business owners, if you will, right? That definitely um, seems to help, <laughs> right? Oh, so that sure. you can actually do things that uh, I think are, are a little bit more for the business rather than just digging into data. Yeah. And that's where, you know, tools are so helpful when you have a good, you know, a good tech stack that can really bring light to those things. But sometimes you don't have that and you have to figure out what works. Yep. Absolutely. That was it. The mother, you know, in, invention is the mother, right? It's necessity, basically. It's that whole, you know, work smarter, not harder. So we find ways. It, exactly. You're like, I can't, I can't continue to do it this way. So I'm going to find a better way. Sometimes just you feel like you have no choice, right? <laughs> Yep. And then of course, when you leave, somebody has to take that over. You were lucky that you actually had somebody to take that over. A lot of times, either you leave a company and it kind of dies on the vine or you come into a company and now you have inherited something that's somebody else's brainchild and you have no idea how to use it. We got macros everywhere and code and you're just like, all right, well, if this breaks, I can't run the report this month. <laughs> And and so what do we do when that happens? Usually people start over most of the time. Yeah. So so starting over, what would you say is, you know, your biggest, I would say like, I don't know, I, I'm not big on the word failure, but maybe your your biggest like chance to learn in your career. I've had plenty of those chances to learn. I like the way someone said it along those lines. I learned this when I was young. I was probably 20 when I first heard it. it might have been 21. Someone said, I've never had a failure. I've only had a learning experience. Hmm. And I, I, re I really like that way of thinking about that. So I'd say one of my big failures are learning experiences. I was working for American Express and we supported the end customers. What we did is we, we were, it was before I had worked in FP&A, we ran these programs where we incentivized the agents to sell certain suppliers. And so it was what we call preferred or preferred uh, vendors. And we do this preferred rewards program and this one had this totally different way they wanted to do it. So I set up the database and got it all working and ran all the reports and sent them and they paid them out. And then I realized, I think when we sent them, that I had made a mistake in the weekly reports. I had put in some code somewhere and ran everything backwards. So we're actually paying the worst performers. Oh no. Instead of the best performers. You know, and it was a decent amount of money. I mean, it wasn't, wasn't six figures, but it was five figures, you know, and I had to bring that forward and explain. And that, that was a learning experience. It's just the importance of double and triple checking your work and making sure it's right. You know, then we had to pay the right people out of our budget. Yeah. Cause you know, the vendor had already paid all the wrong people. That was not a fun one. That was probably one of the pain, more painful ones. Then there was a time I loaded Pol. Fortunately, it was Poland. So it was a very small economic country for us, but it got loaded all in the wrong currency. 
for a budget one time, but at least it was a small country. I didn't load like the U.S. all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. A little different then, huh? You know, so on a global basis, it was barely even noticeable. But for that country, it was obviously an issue. It was an issue. Yeah. So, you know, so you mentioned like, you know, double checking, triple checking your work. What are some of like maybe the tricks that you've learned and used over the years for that exact reason? Because we know we live and breathe spreadsheets. You know, when it comes to spreadsheets, I think, you know, a couple of things, you know, you can put balances in place. If there's any actuals, make sure it ties. Like whenever I would load something, I had it when the models were built outside of the system and then loaded to it and having a tie to check to go, okay, did what I have in the model all get loaded right? Is it all the right accounts? Because, you know, we've all had it. Someone adds an account and it's not in your template. You're like, all right, I didn't know about that one. And you're like, why doesn't this tie? So first, you know, having those checks throughout, if, you know, if it's a three statement model, it is my balance sheet tie. I think uh, checking, doing sanity checks, having some good principles like, all right, I'm never going to hard code. I'm going to have a summary sheet. I'm going to have all my assumptions in clean places. So I think the biggest thing that helps I've really learned, especially starting the business over the last couple of years, is the importance of using good design principles so that your model is well-structured and it's easier to identify. Because the reality is, and we've all probably heard the statistics of what, 90% of all Excel files have an error. Okay, yeah, that may be true, but how many of those are material? Right. And that's part of it because you can do sanity checks. I think one good one I've heard with some people is, you know, right, put all your assumptions to zero, all your inputs and see if your model goes to zero. You know, I, 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 that's one I haven't used. Usually my models are very complex where it's hard to do that. But I think with some models, that's a really good idea is going, okay, that tells you you have a hard coded number. It tells you something's obviously not right if you've turned all your inputs to zero and you're still getting an output. So I think sanity checks also help. You should know the business well enough to be able to look at something and say, is this realistic? Does this look right? Right? Because there's times if you do your job well, you should be able to spot material errors beyond just your checks. Some of that will just come from knowing the business. So so as somebody who's just starting out in their career in finance, just because you said knowing the business, what's a great way for those newcomers, right, coming into the business world to kind of get their leg and to start understanding the business when they don't have the experience? Yeah, there's a couple of things. So, you know, one of the things I've done whenever I've gone into a new role is I try to figure out what are the industry kind of newsletters or magazines that are out there and read them to start learning about the industry. If there's competitors and they're public, read their 10K or their 10Q, listen to an investor call. Beyond that, those things you can do on your own is, you know, talk to your boss about going out on a sales call or a sales meeting, about listening in to a customer support call, or if you're a call center, you know, going for a day and listening to calls. So really making that effort to spend time with the business. I, you know, finally... I had a company where we were struggling to kind of bring employees on board and we were bringing a bunch on board. And I said, look, we need to change the hiring process. And we went through and said, okay, in the first week, we really don't want to have them do almost anything finance really. Let's just set up meetings today with the kind of the product, with the sales team, with the customer support, and just have them go out and learn the business. Then we'll walk them through what we know about it. And so they spent quite a bit of time and found that really helped them come up to speed a lot quicker. So I recommend, one, leaders have a program to onboard that's about more than finance. Focus it on the business in the early days. And two, if you're the employee, take initiative if they're not doing it, both on your own and within the company. No, that's actually fantastic advice. Thanks. 
So what do you see as maybe the biggest opportunity and the biggest challenge going forward for FP&A professionals? Yeah. So I think, you know, industry, I think one of the biggest kind of opportunities in some ways, challenges, and not, I won't say just FP&A professionals, I think finance in general as well, is how are we going to use AI? How is technology going to continue to change things, right? We've all, I think everybody's been shocked to see how quickly, you know, chat GPT and these generative you know, language learning models have started to be used, right? We're seeing tools, I know DataRel released something their own. I know, you know, lots of other tools have. I know, you know, Google's now playing catch up. So I think figuring out how you're going to use that and incorporate it in your work is one thing that needs to be done. And I think that's both an opportunity and in some ways it's a challenge, but I think it's mostly an opportunity. I think the other one is data, which goes both ways, is how are we going to get better at working with data and ensuring we have, you know, good systems for data? Because there's just an overload of data today. Now, what I read, every 18 months, the amount of data we're producing right now is equal to all the data we produced prior in our history, right? We're, so basically, we're doubling the world's data every 18 months. We've been around how many years? It's just amazing how quickly we're adding data. And so I think being able to work with it, being comfortable, being able to ensure you can know what systems to access and how to get the numbers you need and not only get the numbers you need, but I think just to, actually, I'd say more important is how do you take out the noise, right? How do you find the signal? What's important? How do you present that in a way that you can influence the business? So I think those are really two things I see as both kind of, you know, some opportunities and challenges around them that I think will continue to get bigger. The use of AI and then managing data to drive the business forward, because it's easy to just analyze data forever. But if you're not actually finding any insights or bringing recommendations, then you're just basically goofing off, so to speak. Yep. So would you recommend as, again, right, in, in the FP&A career, whether you're just starting out or even if you've been doing it a while, knowing your audience, right? So so how would you recommend, right? So because we, you know, we we do a lot of reports, right? A lot of analysis and, and a lot of output. So how would you cater almost like to the way that you do your job? Um, to uh, really think about who your audience is and maybe what they need, because they're all going to be different. You know what it is like. 13 different spreadsheets emailed out to 23 different budget holders. Multiple iterations, version control, errors, back and forth updates. You never really feel in control of the consolidation and collection process. Yep, I've been there. Stop. Breathe. DataRels is the financial planning and analysis platform for Excel users. DataRels takes data from all of your company's disparate sources. No organization is too complex, consolidating everything into one place, secured in the cloud. Now all your data finally talking to each other. Everything is automated back into your report in Excel. Cash flow, FX conversion, intercompany transactions, now automated and up to date. Drill down and variance analysis in seconds. Don't replace Excel, embrace Excel. Turn your Excel into a lean, mean FPNA machine. Find out more at www.datarels.com. 
So I think there's a couple different things, but I think the first thing it starts with is asking. You know, even when you're interviewing for a job, you know, asking the, the person who's interviewing the boss, what are your biggest challenges? What are your priorities? Because you know, business partner loves nothing more than for you to help solve their biggest pain point. So I think it starts with asking and and understanding. You know, and then it goes much beyond that. So you build that relationship of trust, which I think is really important. You understand what the problems are and you solve some of them. You know, then the next thing is trying to think like your business leaders when you're putting presentations together. I was terrible for a lot of my career at this. Like, well, I love numbers in a table, so I put a table in everything. No, most people don't love a good table. You know, really learning to be able to use visuals that clearly tell the story and that anyone can understand. And that's something I've really learned a lot over the last few years. And I've bought a number of different books. I got one here, Effective Data Storytelling, Storytelling with Data, Show Me the Numbers. And, you know, it's really helped to read best practice. And now every time I put a graph together, I really think, okay, what makes sense here? What will help me tell the story I need to tell instead of, oh, I like the way that looks and I can analyze that. You know, not, not, not what the uh, executive wants to see. Yeah. So, and that's funny because I actually do a, like a bonus session for Christian when he does his FPNA bootcamp and we called it FPNA by design. And that's exactly what we're talking about is how do you tell the story, right? You love the numbers, you love the table, you know exactly what it says, but give it to somebody who doesn't understand finance. If they can't understand what you're presenting, then it's no good. Right. We're trying to teach that FPNA by design because there has to be purpose behind it rather than just a sheet full of numbers. So, yeah, great advice. Totally agree. So, so now I'm going to get a little personal. <laughs> oh, no, I'm in trouble. I know. I know. So what is something interesting about you that not many people know? You have a lot of followers on LinkedIn, and I know you have a lot of followers on FPNA today. So there's a lot of people who know a lot about you, but give us something that maybe not so many people know. I'll tell three because I usually use the, the combination of these when I do, uh, you know, truths and a lie. So, but these will all be truths. I met Jimmy Carter once. This was 2008. I was in the UK in London. I was at Heathrow Airport. I got on a flight, and all of a sudden. Like the flight, some guy's going around shaking everybody's hand and I see two uh, security guys. I can see the earpiece and the suit. I'm like, oh, those are Secret Service. And I look and I'm like, pretty sure that's Jimmy Carter. And the guy next to me goes, who's that? He was from the US as well, older than I am. I'm like, you really should know who Jimmy Carter is. And he went around the plane and he shook everybody's hands before it took off. Wow. That was one second. And now I'm, I'm old and out of shape, but I used to run marathons. I ran my first marathon when I was 17, and I ran a time quick enough at that time to qualify for the Boston Marathon. Wow. So that was an accomplishment I'm pretty proud of. Let's see. The third one is more embarrassing, but so I'm getting ready for a race one time, and I did have some uh, like spandex underneath, but I had my running shorts, and I pulled them off and didn't realize it with my tracksuit, and I ran the race. I had a long singlet, fortunately, so it wasn't very obvious. I ran the race and went to put back on my uh, warm-ups and realized my shorts were sitting in them. <laughs> So, you know, fortunately, like I said, I had a spandex underneath. So I wasn't like, you know, running in the breeze, but it was still embarrassing nonetheless. So there you go. Not many people would know those three. That is true. You can't, you can't Google that and find that out, right? No, fortunately, none of those are on Google. <laughs> I love sometimes we, we talk about, you know, this was before the internet. We have no proof of any of this. 
you know, and it's a good thing because I did a lot of stupid things as a kid that I'm glad there's not proof of. Nowadays, like there's proof of almost everything. You put something online and it's never going away. Ever. I know. And kids don't realize that. I know. (laughs) So we actually do have a couple of questions from some of your followers. All righty. I want to make sure to to kind of include these um, in our interview today. So uh, I'm going to read this one here. It says, do you believe that in the near future, we could see more CFOs which have started as FP&A roles and they don't have CPA certification? We're already seeing it. We're seeing more and more of that. And I think we'll continue to see it. Interesting to go back and listen. I had Casey Wu on, I think it was episode 38, roughly. And he, he came from investment banking, not a CPA background. He's been a CFO, I think five times now with startups. And he commented how the CFO is in the future going to be more like the uh, chief business intelligence officer. And what he meant by that is not we're going to do the technical work, Mm -hmm. but we really need to own the data. He referred to how a modern, you could tell a modern CFO because they'll put analytics under finance. And so we're seeing more and more come from CFA because it's becoming much more important to be that right-hand man to understand the commercial, to understand the strategic the analytics and a lot of those things fall under FPNA. Whereas, you know, you can still come from the controller and the CPA background, and that's a great background, but a lot of that's being automated and viewing, viewed more transactional and governance and regulation and those type of things today where FPNA often gets a much closer view to the business. So I think that's why you're seeing more come from FPNA, but both routes have their benefits and you can become a CFO either way. No, I, I completely agree. And so I think I was reading that there was a poll that was done with CFOs in that they see themselves as like the most manual job in the C-suite. Mm-hmm. Would you, would, would you agree with that? Unfortunately, yes, I would agree with that. I mean, I think, you know, I was reading an article. I wrote an article about, uh, the use of AI. And I mentioned in there, I had found a chart that showed Finance is using AI, you know, kind of that modern technology, the least of all the departments. And I think, you know, there, there's multiple different reasons for that. And then the second thing I think that's a challenge is, you know, finance has to usually put together the data and the metrics across the entire business. They're usually the ones who own the, a lot of those operational metrics reporting at a company level, which means they're getting into every single system. The sales guys typically just getting into Salesforce and maybe a marketing tool and the operations guys getting into an op, you know, has two or three systems where sometimes FP&A, you know, yes, there'll be a data warehouse sometimes, some of that, but often they're still getting into multiple different systems. And that can be very manual because, you know, especially if it's a very mature company, it's been around for a long time. They got a lot of older tools that don't always speak well to each other. Yeah. You're laughing because I think you can relate to that one. I definitely can relate to that one. <laughs> and so going back to not just the AI, but technology itself in finance, it seems, you know, in, in that bell curve, we are, we are laggards, right? When it comes to adopting, especially new technology. Now I'm not saying all, right? A lot of times startups, they're going to be the first in line, but your point when you already have a business that's been established, right? What do you think is really holding back the finance department? as far as right, relying on tech to kind of help with that day-to-day other than probably trust issues? Yeah, so I think I would say probably three things if I was to think about it. First is just investment. Often finance is the last one to get it unless it's regulatory. 
right? If I got to legally meet it, like if I want to go public, I know I got to fix some systems because the last thing I can afford is to restate my public earnings because my accounting system screwed something up or a person screwed it up because the system was a mess, right? And so I think that's often where investment comes from. So I think there's a challenge because, you know, if you're a CEO, do you want to invest in a finance tool or you want to add that salesperson? Salesperson's easier to quantify. That sales system is often more direct. So I think there's a little bit to be said. And the CFO looks at his limited dollars and usually is saying, okay, I can band-aid this. My team can manage it. I want to make sure we hit that top line number. So I'm going to invest it in the business first. So I think that's one reason. I think, you know, that's one challenge. You know, I think some of the others is you look at, you know, finance and there's the trust issue, like you mentioned, but going beyond that, kind of the black box idea, right? If we can't get our hands on it and understand every little number, we're, we're afraid to put it in place. And that's why, that's one of the reasons Excel is so loved. Right. Anyone can get their hands on Excel and look through it. And then I think in general, we often are sometimes are the busiest roles and we don't invest enough time in our self-development. And I think in many ways that is often the biggest issue. I mean, look at PowerQuery. It's been around now since I think 2012. And I would bet of FP&A professionals, 10% are using it, 20. You know, power pivot. You think it's that low? I do. Wow. I, I bet it's under 50% for sure, at least in my experience. Dynamic arrays, right? I mean, I teach Excel and I ask how many people know dynamic arrays and in the room of 20 on average, I might get two or three hands. You know, I'll ask how many know Power Query. If it's a good group, half of them know it. Okay. And this isn't just FPNA, these are finance in general. I don't think I've been in one room where the majority of the people are using it in a training yet. Okay. And so I think that's a huge issue. If we're not even using Excel effectively, why would we expect to be using all the other tools that are becoming available in addition to Excel to help us? So I think upskilling is the other area that really we need to do a better job. Great. So so speaking of Excel, I, you, you know, we have to ask, right? What is your favorite Excel function and why? I shouldn't say Google Sheet. I'm kidding. Uh, let's see. Favorite Excel function. So my favorite feature in Excel Definitely, I would say it right now is Power Query. I love Power Query. And then beyond that, you know, really, I'm going to go with the set of functions versus just one. So I'm going to cheat. Okay. But I figure I get to do that. It's really the, the whole set of dynamic arrays. I love unique XLOOKUP, the new set of arrays. I mean, in fact, this will tell how big of a nerd I am. I bought this book. and I know those people on the audio can't see it, so I'll read it, but it's up, up, and array it tells you how much of a nerd I am. That that's the name of the book. Dynamic array formulas, Excel 365 and beyond. And I was finishing it on my plane ride last week. Don't feel bad. You would not believe how many Excel books I had over my career too. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So that's, I love just, I love some of the things you can do with all these new formulas now that used to be a nightmare. Yep. So, so, you know, Excel has really come a long way, you know, obviously from the beginning, which was a really, really long time ago, you know, and I might date myself a little bit, but my, really my first job that I ever used spreadsheet software, it was not Excel. Well, my, uh, in high school, when I wrote my business plan, it was Lotus one, two, three, Lotus one, two, three. Yep. That was my first, uh, exposure, if you will, to spreadsheets, um, Excel, obviously quote unquote Excel's at it. 
Um, it's been around a really, really long time. And we do see though, that there are a lot of people that are moving to Google Sheets, right? How do you feel about like FP&A using Google Sheets as far? I, I know I see the look on your face, but you would not believe how many people I run into that tell me they're a Google Sheets shop. You know, honestly, Google Sheets has benefits over Excel. Excel has benefits. I think it comes down to, you know, whatever makes the most sense for your company. I, I haven't used Google Sheets a lot. I do like that it's cloud-based. It does have some unique you know, formulas that Excel doesn't. For the most part, 90% of the formulas are the same. I'd say you know, probably the biggest strength, one of the bigger strengths of Excel is it can handle a lot more data. You know, Google was designed for the cloud and was originally designed. It wasn't designed to handle a lot of data. And so you know, some of the benefits are, hey, if you're an overall Google shop, right, then it integrates really well. It's all cloud-based. There's a little bit of ver better version control and security. Some of the things I know DataRails adds to Excel that you don't get real well natively. I know they've done things to improve that, but I don't think anyone feels like the collaborative experience in Excel is great. Like we're not going to write home about it, but it's come a long way. It's definitely a lot better. And so I think, you know, there's pros and cons and you have to decide as a shop what makes sense for you. You know, there's even some new startup spreadsheets out there. And I've seen some pretty cool things with some of them that, you know, do unique things. And you know, I, spreadsheets, the best thing is you can learn almost any spreadsheet and it's going to transfer pretty well. 80, 90%. Like if you learned on Google Sheets, it's going to be very similar in Excel. You know, and then if you decide to switch to equals. So I think that's one of the biggest advantages of spreadsheets in general versus, you know, planning tools. When, and I, I get DataRail is a planning tool that uses Excel, but I mean, they have their own proprietary language. It may not transfer as easily. Right. You know, and so that's one of the nice things about spreadsheets. So that, that's kind of where I stand and I can see the benefits of both, but I don't use Google much. I'd say the most I used it is I had to prepare a training for a company and they were on Google. So I had to take all my models and figure out how to build them in Google. It was the first time I've had to do something like that. So that took a while. I bet. <laughs> And, and, you know, it, and it's funny because when Excel, when Microsoft went from, was it 64,000 lines to now we're well over a million, I think every finance and accountant, you know, professional out there like leaped for joy because we're like, oh my gosh, we can actually bring all of this data in. But I don't think, I don't think Excel realized how much we started using Excel as a database. <laughs> And, and that too kind of has its challenges, right? If you will. And that's why we leverage other tech. <laughs> you know, a couple of funny stories around that. First is I decided to try. So right, there's 1.2 million rows. Was it like 16,000 columns, I believe. So it works out to, you know, 2 billion cells, roughly something like that. I tried writing a sequence formula that's an array to see if it could fill the entire worksheet. You can't do it. There's not enough memory on your computer. I think you would need, someone told me, Instead of 64 gig, you need like 1.2 terabytes of RAM to process a sheet that size, which just goes to show, yes, there is a huge number, but it's just not realistic in a spreadsheet. It's not a database to be trying to use every single row and column. And the second is one time I inherited a file from somebody that was 1.3 gigabytes in Excel. They were using it as a database. They were doing the billing every month for like the last three years and, you know, getting the uh, a cohort churn analysis from it. And, you know, they weren't saving it as an XLSB. They weren't getting rid of old data. I mean, we did just a few things that had it down to like 300 meg. You know, I say that loosely. And I was like, I was going to, this 
process didn't last long. I'm like, you know, I can rebuild all this. You can get it in Power Query. I could probably have the process so it takes about two minutes each month. And you don't have these files that take five minutes to open, but it never happened. They had some switches and rolled off that job. But that was one of my favorite when I'm like, it's 1.3 gig. Like, what are you doing? That's huge. That's huge. And, and when I talk to people, I always refer to, to my coworkers, Al and Frank, and those stand for Albatross and Frankenstein. And those are spreadsheets, right? Because Albatross, so to your point, right? 1.3 meg, it's huge because it just becomes unwielding at some point. But it started out as Frank, right? Where somebody, usually your CFO, asks for something. And to get it done quickly, you just do it, not thinking that you'd ever have to do it again. And then you continue to add on to it. Yeah, that's great. But now can you do, now can you do? And then you get to that point where Frank turns into Albatross. I like that. I hadn't heard it that way. I usually refer to them as Franken models. I built a few of those over the years, but I had Frank and Al. I have to remember that. I like that, but it's very true. You keep bolting stuff on and you don't, you don't think about the structure because you just need to get it done. And before you know it, you got hard-coded numbers, you got sheets with no name and hidden sheets, and it's just a big mess. Yeah. And before I left FPNA, that was kind of, uh, you know, they made fun of me. I actually have a placard because anytime somebody, I'm like, do you want it right? Or do you want it right now? Because you're going to get something different. So true. Because and to your point, right, especially in finance, we're so busy all of the time. And that's why we don't adopt, you know, is, is one of the reasons you said why we don't adopt new tech, why we don't adopt, mm-hmm. right, um, you know, bringing in other um, solutions to help us do our job. Remember when we just don't have the time. And so we we tend to just put it together, right? Because somebody needs it yesterday. And that's where that's kind of, that's like step one, right? That's where the problem started. (laughs) That's the root cause right there. And so, yeah, I I have learned to kind of set those expectations because if you want it right now, you're going to get a different output than if you just let me have the time to do it right. No, so true. I remember we had a new uh, CFO and he would stand over the shoulder of people who were sitting there waiting for the report. And the one girl finally turned to him and she's like, you know, you're not helping things. Like a, it's going to take a little while. Just go sit down and relax and I'll bring it to you when I'm done. I need some time to ensure I get you the right numbers. But he would literally just stand. Unfortunately, I was remote, so he couldn't do that to me. But he would stand over people's shoulder and I'd see him travel just waiting. And then the one finally went, like, just go calm down, relax for a minute and let me get you the right number. <laughs> We've all worked for those, right? For people just like that. Yeah. So so that leads me into my last question, which again was a LinkedIn question. How do you feel FP&A improves business performance? There's a few ways, but I think one of the best, best ways it improves performance is to be there with the business, understand strategy, and help ensure that the programs they have are resourced appropriately, that they're realistic estimates to it, and that there's a solid strategy there to help the business go forward. And that's why it's so important to understand the business. I still remember, and this is one of the, you know, compliments I'm probably most proud of in my career. And I really, you know, I'd worked really hard to get to know this business and I've been very involved. I had a business leader when I left, he goes, you know, he's like, you don't just report the PL, you help shape the PL. And his idea was you're helping influence the numbers by helping us make good decisions. And that's really what it comes to, down to. Ultimately, we're stewards of capital under the office, you know, under the CFO. And our job is to help ensure the business best uses that capital to help us grow. 
And if that's being done, if we're you know building good models, we're providing good insights, then we can really add value and that's rewarding. I mean, for me, the other thing that's extremely rewarding has nothing to do with that. It's just training somebody, right? Seeing someone develop and grow. But that isn't so much the business, but it can be in the sense of if you train good people, then you're leaving the business better than when you came. Great. So so before we wrap up our podcast today, is there anything else that you would like to share with, I would say our view, but your viewers um, on FBNA today? You know, I'll just say thank you for listening. And it's kind of been fun to be on the other side of the uh, mic for a change and just appreciate, you know, how many people listen. I didn't realize how big this would become. And I totally love doing it. And I'm grateful for everyone out there who takes the time to listen and keep the notes coming. I love to get the uh, emails, the messages from people saying, hey, I listened and this episode helped me with this, or I really appreciate what you're doing. And so just a big thank you to the audience and a thank you to you for uh, playing host today. Yeah, it was my pleasure. (laughs) Thanks, Paul.